was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so happy to welcome my guest, founder of Black Theater Coalition and veteran Broadway ensembleist T. Oliver Reed. T. is currently understudying Andre de Shields in Hadestown, and his other Broadway credits include Chicago, Thoroughly Modern Millie, La Cajo Fall, Sister Act, Follies, Kiss Me Kate, The Wedding Singer, Mary Poppins, After Midnight, Sunset Boulevard, Once on This Island, and more. He also performed off-Broadway in the Cotton Club Parade and on screen in Peter Pan Live. A note before we start that this interview was recorded in May of 2021, so everything that's said reflects the current events of that time. So now, without further ado, T. Oliver Reed. I'd love to start by asking you how you first got interested in theater. Uh, well, uh, I th- theater got interested in me. I apparently had been singing since I was probably four or five years old uh, growing up. And I was, when I was in elementary school, I was in what, what they used to call then sort of the, the gifted and talented classes. Uh, I think they're now academically gifted or whatever, whatever, whatever they're calling them now. Uh, and my guidance counselor was also on the board of directors at our local little theater. So I, I you know, spending, I was spending two or three days with her or her a week in school. And she, one day she asked me if I would audition for one of the shows they were doing at our local little theater, the little theater of Gastonia in Gastonia, North Carolina. I auditioned. It was Shenandoah. I booked the, the role and that, that along with watching movie musicals like every Saturday afternoon on television after school, probably that same year, maybe the year before, um, like Annie was nonstop playing in our house because I literally would listen. I knew every song every afternoon after school, I would come home and listen to the entire cast recording, singing everything. So the, I mean, all of those things together sort of, sort of, sort of made theater click in with me. So that was around probably around nine years, eight or nine years old. Were there some specific performers that you saw or heard that you wanted to be like or emulate or just that you really admired? <laughs> Andrea McArdle. But other than that, I no, I'm honestly, I mean, there, there were just, there were so many performers that were, you know, I mean, clearly, like, it would have been a Julie Andrews, it would have been a hearing uh, Marnie Nixon's voice, it would have been, oh my gosh, uh, it could have been Alfred Drake, it could have been any... Uh, Oh my, oh my gosh, um, it could have been Judy Garland, any number of people that were sort of in those MGM musicals when I was growing up. All of those were, were influences. So that kind of onstage sort of theatrical presence, all of those things were part of really sort of probably molding me when I was young without me even realizing it. Yeah, yeah. And were your parents sort of supportive of your interest or doing it as a career? Uh, well, my, my entire family is musical, so I don't think that it was, 
I don't think that it was sort of far-fetched for them to think, oh, at some point, one of them is going to do something in music. Uh, my family's all in North Carolina, and uh, I think the idea of me moving away was probably the more, the more shocking thing, not as, I don't think that going into theater was as shocking as saying, I'm moving to New York and going to live in New York for the majority of my life. And where did you study in terms of college and all of that? I went to what was then known as the North Carolina School of the Arts. It's now the University of North Carolina School of the Arts uh, in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Uh, I was a music major with um, an interest in vocal performance opera because there was there is not a musical theater program at at UNCSA. There, it's all conservatory, so it is it is classical music. It is uh, sort of classical theater dance, uh, both ballet and contemporary or modern, uh, the School of Visual Arts, there's design and production, there's now a School of Filmmaking, which is really broadening everything, but still not, not a musical theater program at the school. And so even though you were studying singing in college, was dancing and acting still sort of going along with that? Or? Yes and no. Uh, no, in that for, for the opera majors, the vocal performance majors, there, there was none of that, except that uh, Yula Pandi, who was a, a ballet dancer and one of the ballet instructors in the School of Dance, taught the movement for singers class. And he saw that I had facility to, to dance. So he spoke to the then uh, Dean of the School of Dance, Susan McCullough, and asked her if I could take dance classes when they fit into my music schedule. So on top of all of my music classes, when I could, I was taking a men's ballet class. I was taking a modern, and that was with, uh, could be what most likely was with Duncan Noble. I was taking modern dance class with Richard Kutch or Dick Gain, every once in a while with Mabel Robinson. Uh, so anytime I could fit those, those school of dance classes in my schedule, they allowed me to do that. And once I saw that they would allow me to do that, then I went to the School of Drama and asked them the same thing. So then I got to add in some song as lyric class. I uh, came in and taught many classes and also their, their jazz dance class. So I really, in my time, got, got a, a sufficient amount of musical theater training, even though the school did not offer that. And when did you decide to move to New York and when did you end up moving to New York? New York decided me once again. I, I my, my senior year, uh, Vicki Bussard was there and directing the opera. She also was going to be directing the second national tour of Once in This Island. So while she was there, I remember one day she came up to me, she's like, would you, would you be interested in auditioning for this tour of Once in This Island? I was like, I don't know what it is, but sure. So I went, I remember going back to my apartment uh, getting the CD and listening to it and listening to it for two or three days straight, like nonstop, like couldn't stop listening to it. And I finally said to her, said to her, it's like, yeah, I'll audition for this. And I flew to Chicago where, where she was having auditions. And I don't, I know that they were having auditions in New York and I don't know why I didn't fly to New York, but I flew to Chicago for the audition, uh, booked that three days after graduating from school, drove a U-Haul to Chicago to start rehearsals. Uh, and went from that into a, uh, a bus and truck production of Guys and Dolls, and then did some regional theater. And it was probably, I think it was, it was a few years before I actually 
moved to New York. And, and that move to New York was right before, right around the time that um, a lot of things sort of started to happen. I, I was booking a lot of things. I was like, okay, so this, this clearly means it's time for me to actually have an apartment in New York City as opposed to crashing on friends' sofas or subletting from someone, but to really be here for a little while. Yeah, yeah. And did auditioning sort of come easily to you once you came to New York? Were you getting a lot of jobs right away? I mean, I mean uh, that's, a, that's a, I know. It's like, yes and no. I mean, because I mean, like, I have friends like uh, Holly Crookshank, who was who was one of uh, one of the beauties in Will Rogers Follies. She was she was in school with me. She was a ballet major. She was taller than the other women. Uh, the school brought the dancers to New York on a trip. She was, she's a, in her, in her flat footed, she is six feet tall and she is stunning. So they were on a trip here while she was in school and someone walked up to her and said, you need to audition for Will Rogers Folly. She walked in, booked the show, started working on a production contract immediately. That was not for me. That was not me. So it was a couple of years of going in and having a couple of casting agents who really liked me and were really pushing for me and fighting for me. But I was going in and and again, because of the training that I got, like I, I remember choreography because the music is in my head. So whether I'm humming the music or I'm like, okay, this is and on this on this uh, this measure or this melody, that's when this is happening. That's how I always remember things. So I was going in and doing really well at 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 the dance auditions. And my thing was always this: if I could get through the dance audition. I'm not even I'm not worried anymore because as soon as I sing it's 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 gonna be a hole in one they're gonna it's I'm either gonna book it because they love me or I'm just not right for it uh so but it was probably it was a couple of years of being in the city and auditioning a lot booking booking a lot of regional things but it was it was probably two years of of regional auditions as well as Broadway auditions and people getting to know me and it's the thing I always tell everyone it's like it's not about you booking that thing immediately. It's about you going in and showing many times the casting agents that they can trust what you're doing was not a fluke, that you come in every time and you dance that way. You come in every time and you sing that way. And that's when they're going to start bringing you in all the time. So like at one point, you know, it's like early, like I, I booked uh, the tour of Peter Pan with Kathy Rigby that was coming back into New York, like booked that at the same time that I booked the tour, the tour of Chicago. And it's one of those things I'm like, well, I don't know what's one to take. And I had just worked at Main State with someone who's still a dear friend, Paula Leggett Chase. She's like, take Chicago. Broadway's going to come around, go out on that tour. So it was one of those experiences, like everything has been sort of, you know, the next, the next rung on the ladder and has made sense for me. So from there, and then it was, you know, uh, before going into the revival of Kiss Me Kate with Brian Stokes Mitchell and Marin Maisie and Amy Spanger and Michael Barres, I did a, a short stint of a musical version of Romeo and Juliet that starred Patrick Wilson, but was written by Terrence Mann and Chris Demboise was the choreographer. So it's like all of these steps of like, oh, all of these things are getting you, are getting me ready for the first Broadway show. And then the first Broadway show was again, it's like, doing the work and that choreographer was like, I want you on my next show. So moving from this to this and being able to work with people and understanding how the difference in how Kathleen Marshall works to how Rob Ashford works to how Jerry Mitchell works to how Warren Carlisle works to how David Newman or Camille Brown works is all sort of seeing how they work and going, okay, this is, this is how I fit into this, this puzzle. And this is how I, 
this is how I bring me to, to the, the production and to the process. That was long-winded, but I hope it was the right answer. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> and are there certain choreographers who you think that their style especially fits yours or your body or things like that? No, I mean, it is, it's, it's an interesting thing because we, we are, I don't, I'm not, I shouldn't say, unfortunately, we are, we are any time that there are not, there are not like Fosse dancers or Robbins dancers or this person, but now you really have, you have to inhabit a little bit of multiple choreographers vision. So, so honestly, a lot of it, it's, it's just about coming into the room, bringing yourself into the room. And, and as the process is, is building and you're like, oh yeah, I, I see, I see how they move. And it's either going to be a, it's either going to be an easy process for you to say, oh yeah, my body moves like that too. Or it's going to be a, oh yeah, my body doesn't really move like that. So let, let me, let me recalibrate how I think so that I can do what they, they are going to require of me eight shows a week. And and it'll be and, and it'll be an enjoyable process. But yeah, I don't I don't know that there's any. I mean, I in in my early days, the the Rob Ashford bop ba it was was absolutely something that I loved. I, I love the Jerry Mitchell glitz and glam and, and and the pop of how he he choreographs. But more and more, it's like I I find myself leaning towards that modern aesthetic, that more contemporary or concert dance where it is. It, the movement feels organic and feels much more in some in some instances a little more natural to storytelling but all of it is i mean all of it is you know is exciting to me yeah yeah and what have been some of the most unusual auditions or audition processes that you've had <laughs> <laughs> oh uh, um, unusual processes I mean, honestly, there, there, there have been, I think because I come in with the, let's see what it's going to be mentality there, there's that there hasn't been anything that I've been like, whoa, 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 this is just crazy there. I mean, I, I did do one workshop with someone uh, and the first part, the first hour of rehearsal was always a, a game playing experience for the entire company. And I have to say that that, that perturbed me a little bit because I'm like, Either I come in at eleven o'clock ready to work, or can we start at ten o'clock? I, I I get what the process was in really trying to make us, you know, a unified group, but also it was one of those things for me. It's like I feel like I feel like we're in a a part of a college course or something, and what I really need to do is come in at ten o'clock and start working on what we're doing as opposed to having that moment. That 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 was odd to me. It was like why why are we, why are we why are we doing viewpoints? Why are we doing this? But once you know that, once you know that director and how that director works, you're like, okay, I get it. I, I, I get what they need from us. And that was for us to feel like we were, we were connected in some way. However, I will say to you that going into a rehearsal like that is a little off-putting. And so what did you sort of learn from your first Broadway experience of Chicago? Well, so my, my my official Broadway debut was not with Chicago. My official Broadway debut was with Kiss Me Kate. Oh. So I know it's it's a crazy thing. Like I did the tour of Chicago for fourteen months, and then did actually no, that's not true. You're you're absolutely correct. My official Broadway debut was Chicago. After doing the doing on the road for fourteen months with the tour, they asked me to come back for a few weeks to stand by for Mary Sunshine. 
I don't consider that my Broadway debut because I never went on for Mary Sunshine in New York. I was, I was, I was, I was under contract. I was there, but uh, oh my gosh, I'm trying to think who was who was Mary at that point. Uh, I'll think of his name in a second. Uh, but so never missed a show. I was there. So I, I I say that my official Broadway debut when I actually stepped on a stage for a performance was was Kiss Me Kate. But yeah, I was it was great. I I was I I knew the role because I had, you know, I I had covered it on the role on the road for again for 14 months. Came into Broadway, you know, had a a a lovely quick rehearsal with Greg Butler who is one of the um one of the associate choreographers now, but at that point was dance captain of the Broadway company. I uh, just sort of went through to make sure that, you know, one, I was doing what the Broadway show does, the Mary Sunshine on Broadway does, and it was great. And it was it was so great to be a part of the show and with that company at the time. And then honestly, then soon after, went into rehearsals for the official Broadway debut, Kiss Me Kate. And, and again, just another really spectacular experience and both Chicago and Kiss Me Kate like having having a group of like uh, consummate professionals as those company managers uh, company members really help set you up for the future and for you to realize and understand what what making magic for eight shows a week really is and how how to protect yourself how to how to do your job how to be a great influence for other people like all both of those shows were filled with with those types of performers, so it was spectacular. Like the Chicago experience was uh, Michael Gorman and Sandal Bergman and uh, Dana Moore and Stephanie Pope and Karen Ziemba and Nancy Hess and Brent Barrett and and you know just literally like all of these you know a huge one a huge group of like of artists, actors, dancers who had worked with Bob Fosse. That show was also clearly you know Walter Bobby and 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 Ryan King. So to go from there and then go to Brian Sox Mitchell and Marion Maisie and Amy Spanger and Michael Barres and uh, Michael Mulheron and I mean like this, and again another ex exceptional cast of performers that really set the bar high for for what Broadway is and and what you need to do to to maintain that level of excellence. And can I ask, was it because you were playing Mary Sunshine that you started going by T. Oliver Reed? Because no, I not at all. I started oh. going by T. Oliver Reed because Tim Reed was already taken in, uh, in the unions because they're, the actor Tim Reed, who was on WKRP in Cincinnati, he's had many other television shows, uh, produces as well. So he had T Tim Reed taken. He spells R-E-I-D. He spells Reed the same as I do. And then Oliver Reed was taken because there's the English actor Oliver Reed. So I was just trying to figure out something that actually worked and made sense and also made my mother happy because she somehow wanted that that T in the name. So that's that that's how it all came about. So with Kiss Me Kate, you were a swing in addition to being an ensemble member, I believe. So yeah. what were sort of the biggest challenges of doing that? Adam? The biggest challenges were that it was an ex exceptionally talented cast and both uh, Michael Blakemore and Kathleen Marshall, who were director and choreographer, wanted everyone's talents to be shown. So every trick everybody in the ensemble had, 
I also had to do. So whether you're talking about rolling on a barrel or throwing two girls up in the air at the same time and catching them or juggling or any of those things, I had to do all those things. So it literally was like every time someone did something, I was like, how many, it's like, literally it's like, how many tricks do you have in your, your bag, Jerome Vavona, every time it happened or this person or that person. So that was, that was the worst because it's like, they weren't going to force me to do them, but I was always like, this is what the show is. And this is what happens in this moment. So I just want to make sure that, you know, everyone's getting, getting the show that they are, they're expecting to get. Yeah. 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 And did you end up going on a lot in that? A lot. Oh, yes. So then the next show you did after this, I believe, was Follies with Blythe Danner and Treat Williams. So what was that experience like? That that experience was exceptional. And you're, you're, you'll hear me say this a lot. Literally, I feel like, like every show was an exceptional experience for one reason or another. Yeah. Uh, and a, a part of a part of the a part of the memoir that I'll write at some point. But you know, it was great because, I mean, again, it's like, you know, Blythe and Treat and Gregory Harrison and Judith Ivy, they were all exceptional, as was the entire cast. And it, it really was that moment like you you have sitting and having conversations with certain people. Jane White, who uh, played uh, Solange, was, you know, a, a mentor and a friend and just a, a consummate performer and like sitting and talking to her and having having her ask me questions that she knew I didn't have the answers to was the, it was like, you need to know this and you need to know that and you need to know this. That was great. Uh, listening to Polly Bergen and her stories. I mean, literally listening to all of it, all of the women who were part of the show and knowing that in some way they had all experienced what they were going through. Polly, you know, she's, she, she's saying, I'm still here. And, you know, they had her, they had her in this, this beautiful pantsuit and this big mink coat at the beginning of the show. And she was wearing this huge sort of marquee cut diamond it was her diamond and she tell she told us a story it's like it was the only thing from the marriage her second marriage when her husband took everything from her that's the only thing she kept and for her to have that ring on when she's singing i'm still here was exceptional when judith ivy walked on the stage for that first moment you saw her you saw that that i i sat, sat out of the show so that the swing could go on because he, he had uh people at, at seeing the show that day and i sat out and watched the show and i when she walked onto the stage, you saw the nervous breakdown begin to happen and it broke my heart immediately, like that kind of stuff. But to know that all all these women, these stories were part of of their lives. And it was the moment also for me, it's like, you know, Blythe, one day we were having a conversation and she said, it's like, just talking about acting, she's like, There's a there is a part of me in every character that I play and characters that I have a lot in common with, there could be as much as 99% of me in that character characters that I have very little in common with, whether they are, you know, serial murderers or evil, horrible people, whatever it is, there is, there is that 1% that you can find, you can say, oh yeah, oh, that's what it is. Oh, in my, oh, the, the director or the screenwriter or the playwright has said that they have dark hair. That's the thing that we have in common. And to start to build a character from that little, little thing, that, that teeny tiny percentage, so that you, you build a character that you feel like you are a part of, and it, it, and it, it will never feel, it will never feel foreign to you in that way. I mean, yeah, that, that entire show was, was great. Yeah. And I do want to ask what you think it is about your style that has lent itself to so many golden age shows, be they revivals or just that style. Um, I, on, oof. I don't know. I honestly, I, I, I think it is, I think it is the sort of mixture of, 
of experiences as well as technical things I've learned over the years. I, again, like I, I studied classical voice. So I, I, I learned early on that there is a way to bend the voice so that you can, you can, you can utilize the technique of, of that traditional sort of large voice singing with vibrato and that spin, but you also can bend it in a way that you can straight tone and do what, what you need to so that it feels a little more contemporary. I think same thing with with dance is like there is there is the technique of 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 jazz of theater dance and and ballet and those lines but that also mixes with that that contemporary or modern that makes for something else so it really is for me it's like it's just it's having all of the tools in your toolbox and and knowing when to bring them out and when to be able to use them yeah and so i'd love to ask what your experiences have been like with the tommy awards over the years that you've been performing <laughs> always, always great well it's that thing it's like people don't not not always realize it's one of the few times that you actually get to see the other shows that are happening even if it's just a number and you get to see your friends do those numbers who are in other shows that you're on the same schedule for eight shows a week you don't get to see what they're doing because you're working as well uh but it's those moments of like how crazy back. my life is that you know you know, I think one of my first years, Anne Hathaway was a host, was a presenter, and she walked by. It's like, okay. And then the year like that Hugh Jackman is. And those years that you, you're walking by Cheetah Rivera, and there, and there she is. Or you're in rehearsals, and you're, you're walking around the auditorium, you're, and you get to see where people are sitting. You're like, oh my gosh, this person is going to be here. Yeah. Oh my gosh, this person is going to be here too, and we're going to be able to see them from stage. It's like all of those moments. And, and, and the rehearsal days with all of the other shows are, are really what make the Tony. Most of the times you're, you're on a bus, you're being um, carted to Radio City, and then as soon as your number is done, you're being carted away to get out of the costume. So it really is those rehearsal days where you get to sort of hang out there for a little while and see what the other shows are doing and, and congratulate your friends and take pictures and laugh with everybody. Those are, those are the, really, the really fun times. Yeah. And so, of course, this is skipping ahead a lot and we'll go back from this, but one of the most recent things that you've done is found the Black Theatre Coalition. And so I'd love to know how yes. the idea for that started. The idea for that started, uh, an idea that I had uh, for a concert series that, be, that would be something that was similar to Encores in New York or Reprise in LA, but it would be in many ways uh, for us by us. So not only would there be black and brown bodies that were on stage and performing, but all of those offstage positions would be filled by uh, black professionals as well. So from producers and general managers, directors, all of the uh, design areas, casting everything. And as uh, I went to uh, my co-founder, Warren Adams, with that idea, and as we started looking at a three or five year plan, we realized like, oh, wow, there, 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 aren't, there aren't enough of us in certain areas so that everyone who is working in, in the field gets an opportunity to have a spotlight put on them so that producers, uh, theater owners who are working in the city and the Broadway box can look and say, oh, we have all these people. In some areas, it was like, oh, there are two people. So we'd just be reusing those same two people over and over. And we realized that that's not what we wanted to do. We wanted to make sure that there were opportunities so that there were more Black professionals working in all those areas. So for us, it was figuring out what that meant and, and how to get people in the room. There are plenty, there, I, there, there are black professionals who are working regionally or off Broadway, 
but that jump from off-Broadway to Broadway is so wide that many producers get nervous about giving someone an opportunity. So we wanted, we wanted to find ways to bridge that gap and to make, make the playing field more equitable. Uh, and some of that would, is going to be through apprenticeships that we are developing and fellowships that we are developing so that we are, we are putting these professionals in rooms with, with other teams in, the, in these spaces where they feel supported, but they're also able to start building relationships so that so that in 10 years there, there's, we're not having the conversation, well, I don't know any black lighting designers, but oh my gosh, I worked with these, these 12 people on all these shows as, as either the designer or they were assistants or associates on shows. Let's hire them for this because we, we know how they work and they know what we like. So that we are, we are, we are doing what we can to, to fix the problems that we have right now. You know, if you look at the numbers, it's less than 1% of black professionals who are being hired for for Broadway shows. So for us, it's about moving the needle and changing, changing that number over, over the next years. Uh, so that, so that the theater looks Broadway and the American theater looks like the world around us, the world that we say we want in the seats on the stages, those stories being told, we have to now do, do what we can with our industry partners and accomplices to, to move the needle. Yeah. And how has the pandemic and, of course, the recent Black Lives Matter protests affected this and affected your long show? It's 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 given us time you know, again, like, you know, in any other year, if we had been working, doing other things, we'd been like, OK, so we're going to work on this now and then we go back to what we're doing. But because of the pandemic, we, we were in a pause and we were able to say, OK, we have we have lots of time to figure out what we want this to be to figure out what our mission is, to figure out how the fellowships can work, to figure out what all these things are. So for us, this time has has been great, but it's, it's, it's also been great because it's put a fire under not only us, but other organizations, uh, the theater owners, uh, industry leaders to say, yeah, this is this is the moment that we need to, need to begin the change for the and what have your conversations been like with some of these theater owners and prominent directors and all of that too? It, de it depends on who you're talking about. Like the directors and choreographers that we've reached out to have all uh, jumped in. Mo almost everyone we've had conversations with have been like, absolutely, we've been waiting for someone to to lead the charge, to be able to support what, what we all want to see happen. Uh, you know, and for those who haven't come around yet, they will because they will because there there is there is no other option. The theater as we know it, or ha as we have known it, can't continue. We have to find ways to be more diverse and more equitable, and the stories that are being told. Otherwise, it it will be an art form that dies, and I think that is the thing that none of us wants. So it is about us finding a way to restructure it and to make more opportunities. We're not we're not living in a time when when uh, Rogers and Hammerstein can write 20 shows and they're the ones, they're the only team that's going to be on Broadway. It can't be at this moment that Lin-Manuel Miranda is the only person who's on making, making musicals on Broadway. We have to open up, we have to open up the floodgates so that, so that we are having, we are seeing Asian stories and Jewish stories and black stories and Latin stories. And not because they're simply those, but because they're human experience stories that everyone's going to want to see. Yeah. Something that's yeah. happening to, you know, to a, a 21 year old, uh, you know, cisgender man, no matter what color he is, a non-binary person, no matter what color they are. It's like, 
if it's a story that we understand about that moment in all of our lives, we all will be, we all will be attracted to it. We'll all want to hear that story and see that story. So we have to make sure that, that our trans brothers and sisters are, we're making room for them, that we're making room for Asian artists, that we're making room for Latin artists, that we're making room for black artists so that those stories can be told and we can all benefit from them. And, and that is, that is where we are right now. And so there, so I, I think over the next, the next three to five years, those who are, are holding on because, you know, again, if, if you're a, if you're, if you have been running things and things have been working fine for you, you may be a little more hesitant to the change, but as, as, as the great and late Mirren Maisie sang in, in ragtime, we can never go back to before. And that's kind of where we all, so many of us are. And it's just, you know, for the others, it's like, we'll, we will be here to support you when you're ready, but we're not waiting for you. We're, we're moving forward to change the things that need, need to be changed. And I would love to ask you about what your own personal experiences have been like as a Black performer on Broadway and in terms of, as you were saying, the various- I have, to, I have to say, and it's, it's it, it, yeah, no, it, I, have, I have not had the harmful and uncomfortable experiences that so many of my Black colleagues, friends, peers have had. I mean, partially, I think it's because I, I come in with no nonsense. It's like, you're not, I'm not doing that. You're not going to treat me this way. So, so we're aware of that right away. But I know, I know that many have had those experiences and, and we have to fix that. So even if, even if that, that has not been my experience, I know that it happens. But yeah, I mean, so it's, it is, it is, it is, it is for this generation who have been, who have been made to feel less than, who have been made to feel uncomfortable, who've been made to feel unsafe in spaces that we are, we are about making these changes. Yeah. And so that the next generation of a performer and an artist don't have to come, come into, come into a, a business of show that is also a business that is based on kindness and acceptance because that's the way we really get the genius of the artists on stage. I, I think that you can browbeat people and make people feel less than, but you're then you're not you're not getting the best out of them. You'll never get the best out of someone once you beat them down and then try to give them something. But to find ways to lift people up and allow for that creativity and that artistry to blossom, that's how we're gonna have another golden age of Broadway, another golden age of musical theater. Yeah. And I'd love to ask you about also the project that you're developing for Broadway Records with recording a bunch of new songs and musicals yes. by Black Writers. Yeah, yeah, Black Writers Amplified. And again, it's, it's just, it is another way for us, uh, Black Theater Coalition to, to amplify, to shine a light on uh, musical theater writers so you know whether you are and these it doesn't have to be an all black team like if you are a black composer but you you have a lyricist that is non-black you 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 are absolutely eligible uh and vice versa if you're a black lyricist and have a you know a, a white uh composer that that's that's great or if you're writing everything whatever it is but we went we wanted to make space and room for for a new generation of of black musical theater writers so that we are looking at those who are absolutely green have maybe written a song but this is this is an area they're going in or people who are emerging or people who 
are sort of on the fringe, like we know who they are, we know their names, we know they are doing great work, they just haven't been given that opportunity yet. So it'll it'll be a, the the compilation CD will be a mixture of all of those uh, with as many as 24 different tracks on it. But it really is about making sure that every, every uh, artistic director, executive director, producer, theater owner across across this country can get one of those in their hands so that they can see who's doing what. And, and we don't have to say anymore, oh, I don't know any black musical theater writers. Well, we're giving you, we're giving you a CD with all of these, all of these uh, composers and lyricists on it. Yeah. yeah. And so what have been some of the sort of concrete things that you've locked down for when Broadway comes back in terms of beginning to do this? Um, uh, we are there, nothing concrete yet. We are, we are in the, uh, we just, we just closed down the application process on May 17th. So now we're looking, we're into the selection process and putting the selection committee together so that we can go through, you know, sort of semifinal rounds and final rounds to figure out who's who actually will be the teams or the the solo composer lyricists who will be on the CD. Uh, so hopefully that will all happen. Our plan is for that to be sort of figured out and finalized by August so that sometime this fall we will actually be able to get into a studio somewhere uh, late fall and start recording. So that after, you know, late summer, we figure out who's going to be on, then put them together with musical directors, arrangers to start to really put uh, the tracks together so that we can start recording them. Hopefully, and hopefully have at least one or two available by the holidays for people to start listening to. And so you have a vested interest in the Broadway reopening in so many ways. And so I'd love to ask what it was like for you the day that it shut down, what you can remember about that. It, listen, the day it shut down was great. Literally, we, we, it, was, I, it was bittersweet, I should say. We were, we were on stage rehearsing two uh, new swings that I was uh, putting in the show. They were there as well as uh, putting a, a new Persephone cover on, doing all those things. Uh, Reeve Carney and Eva Noblezada had gone on vacation. That Wednesday night was their last night. Reeve had not missed the show, so his understudy, uh, John was going to, John Krause was going to go on for the first time. All these things were happening. We're in the middle of rehearsal. Our general manager and producer come in and, and say to us, okay, so this is what's going on. This thing is a little more serious than anyone thought it was. So Broadway's going to shut down for a month. I was like, great, because the next week was supposed to be my vacation. And I was like, this is great. I'm going to have a, a month just like sort of rest because I feel like I'm at the, you know, I'm tired. I, I, need, I need a moment. And so like that day, like that happened. And then John came in. We all realized, oh, John's not going on and his parents are here. So, you know, leaving room and space for him to to emotionally process all that. And then we all went over to Glasshouse Tavern and had a couple of drinks and packed up the things that we thought we were going to need for the next month. It wasn't until a couple of weeks later that it was like, oh, this is, this this is serious. How what what's going on? How are people got? How are people going to get through this? And then the quick pivot of how are you getting through this? What are you going to do over the next however much however many months this may be, to to mentally physically take care of yourself, but also financially, yeah, sort of make sure that you're you're not you're not blowing through all of your savings but that you're you're fine and you you have you can find something to do uh during this 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 pause and I, I mean i was fortunate that i had i had options and and was able to sort of take care and stay focused 
on top of Black Theater Coalition and, you know, teaching that I was already doing, but finding a couple of other uh, jobs as teaching sort of on a college level at different universities. Yeah, so it was like, I, I, was, I was fortunate that that was, that was a part of the, six, the 16 months for me. Yeah, yeah. And so, of course, Hades Town has just announced that it will be the first show to reopen on Broadway on September 2nd. Yep. And so have you, what have you sort of heard as a cast member about that? Have you heard a day about going back into her? I've, I've heard, I have heard, I have heard the same thing that you have heard. September 2nd is our opening day. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I, well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have a few weeks of rehearsal. I, I think that with all shows, I think the big sort of, we'll, we'll, we'll see if everything happens as every producer and theater owner is preparing. I, I have a feeling that many shows are going to need much more rehearsal than anyone really, anyone realizes. It will have been 16 months of people not using their bodies, not using their vo voices in the way that it takes to do eight shows a week. Uh, a lot of things that are probably going to not be remembered as we would expect or, or not expect. It's, it's been a long time. So I, I, I think that most shows will will we'll push their opening dates a couple of days just to give people a little more time but but it's 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 going to be a fun process it's going to be great to get people back into spaces and and bringing that energy and that love and and making magic again this is this, it's the thing it's one of the things that have been you know we're so used to it and, and telling stories are such a part of a human experience and we really haven't been able to do that in many ways, sitting in a circle with the audience here and the and the and the cast here, to be able to sit and almost you know like you're sitting by a fire and and telling the story that's part of who we are as as a culture is like we haven't done that, so it's it's going to be great to to have shows reopening and and us kind of sitting by a fire and and telling these stories again. And what would you say is the thing that you're most looking forward to? If you had to pick one sort of element, honestly, I think I think the thing I'm most looking forward to is is that release of of energy from both sides, and and whether that's that first moment when the when the curtain rises and the audience explodes into applause, and we have to, we have that moment then, or if it's at the end of the show where we can have that moment, but it's it's that moment when when we all get to to finally exhale because the thing that we need is 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 about to happen or has just happened and we can we can finally sort of get back we can we can get to a new a new normal for us and so going back to the beginning of Hades town how did that sort of come into your life or start for you well it's 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 i guess it's kind of been in my life from the very beginning like uh Chris Sullivan uh, is a friend, and he was he was a part of the New York Theater Workshop production years ago. Uh, then the Canadian production, Kingsley Legs, who is a friend, was a part of that production. Uh, and so, like I, I had listened to that that New York Theater Workshop recording a lot, and I was working on a workshop uh, of something of Lempika, which is one of Rachel Chapkin's next shows, uh, and heard you know heard oh. Haiti Sound is coming and they're auditioning. And I said to her, like, I want to audition for the show. And so I started listening to that New York Theater Workshop recording again. And it's like, 
and I, I just remember for weeks not stopping listening to it. And and at one point I was like, okay, yeah, so you're going to do the show, and this is what you're going to do in the show because this is what makes sense for for you being a part of the show. It's like you're going to be a dance captain, you're going to cover Hades, and you're going to cover Hermes, and that's what I wanted to do from the very beginning. And if, like and during the entire audition process, kept getting calls from castings like. He's still in the mix. We're just figuring out some things. And I kept saying to my agent managers, like, it's fine. I already know. It's good. <laughs> it's gonna happen. It's I'm not, I'm not, I'm not worried about it. It's gonna happen. There is there's no other, there's no other way around it. It's gonna happen. And so when I got the offer, it's like, and they're like, so you got an offer? It's like, yeah, dance captain, Hades Hermes, right? They're like, yes. Um, but yeah, I, I just the the mute the poetry of the lyrics and the and this this sultry, bluesy jazzy musical theater writing for for that music is like i i knew immediately it's like this is this is a show that i have to do and honestly it's also that thing is like i have to do it but i also am so happy that like you know these two powerhouses you know andre the shields and patrick page and what they do respectively it's like to 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 see them process to to see them in process and what they do and you know and to be a part of this show and help maintain it and all, it's like, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. It was it was a done deal from the from the first moment. Yes, it was love and, at first sight. And what is it like to be in a room with Rachel Chavkin, who of course is a visionary director? Uh well, it's the things like it's yes, she is a visionary. Also, when you're working with someone who loves what they do. And they 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 leave space for you, and they are open to conversations. It becomes more of it feels like they are less visionary and more Pied Piper because they are making room for you to do what you do well. So in that way, that she's not a visionary in that way. That she's like, this is what it has to be, and this is this, and you can't you can't move from that. It is let's let's have let's have the conversation. So if there is something that actually is the is the better way to get to the story we want to tell let's make sure that we have covered all the bases and checked everything off so that we know this is the road we're on and that's the thing that makes makes her work so visionary to me and, and that is like it is it is it is it is she is leading us all down the road she's leading us all to the end of the story but she's allowing for for us to pause and have a conversation. She's allowing for us to pause and have the emotional moment we need to have. She's allowing for all of these things along the journey so that what we need to, to take with us on the journey and continue to tell the story, all those things are still there. And not a, Rachel said to move from here to here. I don't know why I'm moving from here to here. I'm just doing it. Yeah. She allows she allows for that those moments of us to figure it out and and that is, I think that's a part of why, why her storytelling is so, is so epic. When did you know, or did you always know that it was going to be like the monster hit that it was? I don't, honestly, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Like, again, for me, like, listen, I had been listening to that recording for so long. So for me, it was like, this is spectacular. I, I think, I think it was probably in rehearsals and, and seeing how they were all working together and, it was th it, those moments and seeing how how things were were manifesting that it's like I don't know how people could not fall in love with this show, but I think you know everyone was still nervous 
up until first preview is like, oh, who, we don't know who's coming. If it's if people are going to come, and then that opening night, when, I mean that that first preview when the when the place was packed and people were out of their minds, it was like, okay, everyone everyone can relax a little bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And what were some of the changes that were made to the show during rehearsal? Not a lot. Again, um, they're, they're they're at that point they had done three different incarnations of the show. Uh, so by the time we were in rehearsals for New York, there were there were minor things because you know either the size of the stage or because over those productions they realized oh we tried this and then we tried this we really liked this so it really was at that point it was like it was it was just fine tuning so many things because you know they they had tried and tried and said okay so this it is it's and not the it's but not so those things that were part of the poetry so that Aeneas it was it actually became it became sonnet like it became soliloquy in the way that it's like now it's perfection because we've had a chance to hear other versions of it and the same thing with you know with the staging and all those and the and the choreography it's like we know we know what it was but now we know we know what it was we know what we have and now it's just it really is polishing this diamond so that it is absolutely it's the right movement it's the right step it's the right it's holding the note just long enough so that we all get exactly the story that we need. So that when when Hermes turns and looks, there's a reason. There's a reason that he says, we're gonna sing the song again. And the reason that he repeats the same words, you know, over and over throughout the story, because even though he, re he repeats them several times, we're like, yeah, 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 that, let's get to this. And then at the end of the story, we're like, <sighs> and he says to us, I've told you, I said it here, I said it here, I said it here. Now this is where we are. Yeah. Lesson not learned. But So going back to a little bit about where we were, I think one of the next shows you've done after that was Lacage in 2004, The Revival. And so I'd love to ask you about, um, there was sort of a famous thing, I don't know if you want to talk about this, but I can cut it out if you don't, about uh, Daniel Davison being replaced by Robert Goulet. Yeah, it was, it, yeah, it was, here's the thing. The, the Broadway stories are going to be Broadway stories no matter what. It was, it was unfortunate that, that Daniel was not happy at the show. And that unhappiness poured into a lot of things in a lot of, in a lot of treatment of other people. Yeah. So it, in it, it was, it was unfortunate that when you get into that kind of circumstance and, and things just sort of snowball down the road, going from rehearsals into previews into a show opening uh, into you know not not being happy that something had to change and I mean I mean the biggest third part of that was literally like you know on a on a Sunday afternoon Daniel finished the show uh, one of the, one of the company members was still at the theater once he left uh, producers came in they cleaned out his dressing room and they were like okay so we're gonna Robert Goulet's coming in so you know over the next couple of weeks, uh, the understudies went on for for Daniel as we were preparing uh, Mr. Goulet for the show, who was spectacular, who hardly ever remembered any of the lyrics, but he was so great. His 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 vocabulary was so vast that he would say something that you knew was the wrong lyric, but it made sense. So you literally had to go, wait, no, that wasn't right, but it was fine. Uh, but no, it was, and he was he was he was he was a, he was a delight. And it's one of those situations where, you know, it's like, uh, 
I'm I'm sad that Daniel had that experience. I wish we'd had Goulet the entire time. Gotta say, it just would have been, it it would have been an all around different experience for the entire cast, for Gary Beach, for everyone. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, what was it like for you to be performing in drag? Uh it was honestly it 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 we 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 had a we had a a, a brother sisterhood that was so enjoyable. So it was like it was. It it didn't seem, it didn't seem out of the ordinary. Again, it it was it was like this is a part of these characters. This is a part of what this is. And and I'm the birds are chirping so loudly here. Um, it literally is like this is this is a part of what what this story is. So how how do we how do we encompass this character and tell this story just like we would any other character? It just means we're just doing it in in three inch heels. Yeah. 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 And so in addition to your Broadway career, you also have a very successful cabaret career. And yeah. And so one of the shows you do is the music of Bobby Short and like yes. a tribute to Bobby Short. And so did you get to see him perform ever? No, it's 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 one of those things that I wish I wish those early years that I was in New York that I had the money to go to the uh, Cafe Carlisle and see Bobby Short. Um, but he is like, but early on, there were people who were like, oh my gosh, you sound so much like him. And I, listening now, I was like, I don't, but there, there, there is something in sort of, I guess, the, the timbre of our voices or maybe the, the, the quickness of the flutter of our vibratos that is, is similar, is not dissimilar. But I, yeah, I, I wish that I had seen him live at Cafe Carlisle. I've, I've seen like, you know, that late night at Cafe Carlisle, there's, there's a CD that they did that's, really just spectacular look one looking at you know the mid 80s and and what people were wearing but also hearing him sing the songs on this recording um but yeah that's honestly that's i think that is that is one of the things that's like oh, i wish i had done this i also wish that when i was offered the opportunity to do a week at the cafe carlisle i would have taken it but i was i had already booked another venue and i didn't want to i didn't want to cancel on them to do something else but it's definitely one of those things like, ah, oh, I hope it comes back around again at some point. Yeah, yeah. And so that being said that you hadn't seen him in per person, how did you sort of formulate this like tribute to him? Partially looking at, well, partially reading the biographies. Uh, also that CD of uh, Late Night of Late Night of the Carlisle with Bobby Shorts, like going over and over in that. And every CD, probably on iTunes that he did just listen to every song and and it and not and not wanting to be a tribute in the way that I'm trying to I'm trying to be Bobby Short but a tribute of you know of those songs that are my favorites of the American songbook that were also on these CDs that he that he recorded that were his favorites to build a story around those to build his story around the information from those those books about him about about who he was, who he was was as an artist, who he was, was as a person, as uh, as a friend, to to encompass that and to make to build that bubble, so that in many ways it's like, yeah, we're talking about Bobby and it's me singing, but it's also allowing people to hear the songs in the way they want to hear them and need to hear them, which is the special, which is always a special thing for me. It's like it's great when I, when I'm there and I'm able to sing them, but it's 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 much more enjoyable for me when I know that people are sitting there and 
they're they're listening, but they're envisioning whatever it is that is their connection to that song. Yeah, yeah. And so, how did you sort of balance doing this with your performing on Broadway? There's no balance. It's just doing. <laughs> yeah, you, it really is just like you just you 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 figure out what the timing is and what you need what you need and how you need to do it. Uh, but yeah, it, I don't want to say the balance is overrated. Balance is necessary. But there is a sort of there, there, you find yourself in moments of like, this is that moment. So for for this moment, the balance is going to be off because I need to make this happen as well as the other things that I'm doing. Yeah. You, you have to make, you have to make time when when the universe says to you or when the universe gives you the idea or gives you the space to make something happen to say, okay, this is this is when this needs to happen. And then and we'll we'll figure out the rest later. And what are some of your favorite venues to perform in as? Oh, that's that's. I mean, they 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 all are delightful in their own way. I mean, I there honestly, I mean, there's there's no, I I say this having not actually performed on the stage at Cafe Carlisle because that room alone and the, the jewel box quality of it has to be has to be special when you're when you're singing there. But the Appel Room at Jazz at Lincoln Center, there there is nothing like being in that space with the city behind you. There's there's nothing like yeah. it, and there there are lots of amazing rooms and have been over the years here and in Palm Beach and in Los Angeles, but really that that space and I I even prefer that space to Dizzy's upstairs at Jazz Lincoln Center. The Pell Room is is really there's nothing like it having having the city as the backdrop behind you. Yeah, yeah. And so a show that you did that you had a very long sort of journey with like Hades or or like Hades Town had was uh, After Midnight. And mm -hmm. so how did what was originally Cotton Club Parade happen for you? Uh, again, it's like, uh, I'll, I'll say happenstance. Uh, got, a, got a call for that to audition. Um, and somehow, you know, that that first incarnation of it led to the second, led to, led to after midnight. Um, you know, yeah, it's like it's one of those things that sometimes you're a part of a, a process from the very beginning, and 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 the project says yes to you and holds on to you. So, yeah. yeah. How did the sort of form and idea for that change? As uh, not honestly, not a lot. Of most, almost all of the numbers. In the show, the the poetry of Langston Hughes was all very similar from the first incarnation to when After Midnight uh, opened on Broadway. Some of the performances changed, which mean, means that some of the choreography changed a little bit. For, but for the most part, and some of some of the poetry was was truncated, snipped, so that it actually it fit in a way that made sense for the show. Uh, but yeah, it, uh, for the most part, it was it was. It was a lot of the same show, just you know, again polishing up the diamond to to get to what it needed to be in order to open on Broadway. And what was it like to be developing it with Warren Carlyle? For it was great. I mean, again, every every director choreographer is a little different. Warren comes comes in and has a fairly not not fairly a clear idea of what he he needs and he wants and and that's what actually starts to make it onto stage um but yeah it's great i mean like i honestly i i i've seen a lot of warren's work and and a lot of times his best work uh 
but Cotton Club Parade into After Midnight, there were some moments I was like, yeah, it's not, it's not going to get any better than this. It's spectacular. And this is, you know, Mystery of Edwin Drood, I was like, oh my gosh, this is great. Uh, some of his choreography and chapel, I was like, oh my gosh, this is great. And then we get to After Midnight, I was like, no, this is, this, 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 the, the ease of what he was doing for After Midnight, the sort of calm about it's like, yeah, this is, he's, he's in his, he's in his sweet spot in, in that zone. Yeah. Yeah. And you were working with a big ensemble cast for this. And did you sort of like that dynamic in terms of? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, again, it's like, it's, it's always about, it's always about the cast. I mean, it's about having a group of people who, who work well together, who know how to have a good time and know how to do their jobs and know how to storytell. And that show had a, an exceptional group of people. Yeah, yeah. And you've sort of done a cabaret show about this same era and world. So what sort of interests you about it? I mean, there's, I mean, it's, it is, it is a turning point for, for African-Americans is a turning, turning point for culture in this country. It is, it is when, when the, when the great musical theater writers like Harold Arlen were also trying out music in Harlem. It's when the Harlem Renaissance was happening. There's the, the poetry, County Cullen, uh, Langston Hughes, did uh, there's so much that was happening at that point in this country and especially in Harlem that it really was it was the epicenter of it was the epicenter of what I say is Negro life but it was the epicenter of art at that point and where where jazz was bumping heads with musical theater and they were bumping heads with 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 opera and figuring out oh there there are ways we are we are all living in the same universe people are just telling stories in the way that makes the most sense to them. So that I think that's part of the reason that that, that era rings wow. true or holds holds sort of a, a special place for me because it is it is that moment of like where we are all sort of sucked in and the oxygen is taken out of this taken out of this bubble and we're like we're able to just live and hear the music and hear hear how we bend tones and and hear a lyric in a way that we had not heard lyrics before. So all of those things sort of working together makes makes that that period especially, you know, 19 I say 19 honestly 1933 to like 1937 really specifically like fire. Like there there is so much going on in, in that moment in those in those years that changed musical theater changed American standards, American pop standards, changed the music we were listening to and who was singing that music, how we were dancing, the clothes that we were wearing, all of that really, really happens in, in, in that, that short window. And if you could go back in time and have a conversation with anyone from that era, who would it be? Oh, honestly, I mean, mm -hmm. Ted Kohler or, or Harold Arlen. It would be one of those two, for sure. Probably, yeah. and honestly, probably Ted Kohler because there, I mean, he was writing lyrics for Harold Arlen for a lot of these spectacular songs. Uh, yeah. 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 And so after, after Midnight was doing Peter Pan live on television. Yeah. And so that must've been a whole different kind of thing because it was being filmed. And uh, was that in a theater or? How was that? No, that was not a. We we rehearsed for a good portion of the process in a in a regular rehearsal room, and then we moved out to Beth Page to a sound studio, uh, and everything was everything was done on on the studio. Yeah. 
did you sort of have to change your style of performing a little bit or at all? No, not not really. It is uh, the beauty of those is that there there is a a stage there is a stage stage manager and a TV stage manager who are working together so that they can they can build the story in the way because it wants to feel like live theater and not like and not like a filmed moment. So it allowed for the performance to do what what we all normally do, but to be to be maneuvered in a way that makes sense for for television. Yeah, yeah. And so either on television or on stage, are there any sort of great roles of the American musical that you would still like to tackle? Honestly, I don't know. I mean, I mean there there are, but the, I mean, there, there there's so many there's so many other areas that I want to go in that like in, including directing, including producing, including continuing with like with Black Theater Coalition and things that that I, I feel like I feel like that boat has sailed a little bit. Now, but don't get me wrong, I mean, you know, there there are ideas for one, drop me off in Harlem, which is the show about, you know, the Harlem Renaissance that I did. I I want to direct and produce that, but I I want someone else to actually be on stage doing it eight shows a week. Uh, I would love to for a short short time to look at, you know, rack time. Uh, I, I love, I did a production years ago of Cabaret where the MC, I played the MC and it, 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 it puts a different spin on that time, but it also allows us to see, you know, what, what, what Germany was doing and what they were doing to anyone they felt was other. So whether you were Jewish or gay or black or what have you, in many ways, all of those who were other were, were, were in trouble. So to figure out ways to tell those stories that that feels a little that that story that feels they feel a little more inclusive, um, yeah, there 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 are some things, but nothing nothing stands out like I can't I can't leave this planet until until I do this show. And so you are, I believe, about to make your foray into directing with um, Ambassador of Love at the Albany. Yeah, that's that'll be at good speed, uh, starring Rashidra Scott. Uh, and it it is, it is, an evening of of enjoyment with Pearl Bailey. Uh, and looking looking at her career, film, television, and 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 Broadway, uh, and you know the fact that you know she she was looked at at this ambassador love because she she was someone she traveled the world, spreading joy to, to to U.S. military to having friends who. One of her one of her dear friends was, and I'm I'm forgetting the woman's name. Uh, she was the ambassador for whom "Call Me Madam" was was written, or about whom "Call Me Madam" was written. Uh, so like, she, it, it's just a story of again, like the songs that she made famous, but also, you know, building around those those songs, you know, quotes that she she said and things that she lived by. And what have you sort of discovered about directing and about yourself as a director from doing this? Honestly, it's it's it is again it's it's the it's the gift of storytelling, and I've I've had the the beauty of a career that has put me in rooms with people who were really great and people who were not as great, uh, and you 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 learn from both of those. But to to allow the story to tell to tell itself and allow the story to lead all decisions and and to be clear on on what is important yeah uh, so that 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 for me is always 
always the end goal and always the starting point and always the end goal is like, what is the story we want to tell? How do we tell this story most clearly? Let's do that. And then we can decide if we want to add on, we want to add on the glitter, we want to add on the extra, the makeup to it. But we always, we always, you always have to have the base. You always have to have that story clear and then in broad strokes, and then you can go back and fill in things you want to. Otherwise it literally is just, it's just, a, it's just a, you know, it's a makeup head, but no, there's nothing that's, that, that is drawing you to it. There's nothing that's making you want to connect and bringing out that emotion, emotional connection. So for me, it, it really is about always being able to make sure that the story is clear and that's, that's what's leading. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, you were in Sister Act in 2014. So I would love to talk to you about that and Patina Miller and mm -hmm. all of that sort of experience. Well, it, it's, it was great. I mean, honestly, I, I didn't get much time with Patina because I, I joined the show late on. Uh, this was after the Tonys. I, I joined the show. I started rehearsals in January. Patina was there. I think, I think we were, we, we got to work together for about a month and she left. Uh, and Raven Simone came in. So I, I was there over, sort of over the turnover before the show got its notice. I, at that point, I had been at Mary Poppins for years. I was looking at other avenues for work and what I wanted to do. Uh, and I kept saying no to other shows because I wasn't sure if they were going to run or not. So finally, I was at the moment like with, with Sister Act is like, it's time for something different. Yeah. And was there for almost six months. And it was it was great. It's, 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 it's a joyous story. Uh, and... Yeah, I mean, it was it was a, it was a fun time. It was it was a lovely cast. Uh, again, it's like, you know, I was I'm trying to think. Yeah, I got there. I got there. Victoria Clark had just left. Patina was about to leave. Um, Carolee Carmelo had come in, and then Raven came in after that. Yeah. 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 And so you've done throughout your career a lot of shows that have been very successful and some that haven't been as successful. So I'd be curious to know what your opinion is on critics and how they... Uh, it's your thing. Um, I think I, my, in my mind, the, the, the place for a critic is very similar to what we used to look at as news reporters just reporting the news without without a without a personal bias at all it's like this is what it is this is this is the history of the show or this is the story of the show this is the plot these are the characters this is what's going on go see it if you want to this is this is the news period so that people can make those decisions for for me it's like i i, I don't i don't know that they are they, they are necessary in the way that people will will come and see things that they haven't heard of, but not necessary in the way that I need someone else telling me if they think it's good or not. Because one person's opinion is not going to be someone else's. And also, it's like, it's, it, is, it, is, it is a model that I think that we need to change in, in theater. It's like, why, why are they there? Are they needed? Are they, are they helping build a community? Are they helping a show figure out what it's what it's missing or what it needs or has it turned into something that is just about being petty and and witty and also hurtful it's like i think i think we've all passed that we've 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 been through a year of we realizing that there are things that we need and we don't need uh and i i don't i don't need that so if, if there's another way for us to have a critique 
of something that's not a criticism of it, then I'm all for that. But we, we have to look at that. Yeah, yeah. And do you find that you have a good sense going in of how well a show is going to do? You know, I don't, I don't know that, I don't know that anyone does. I think that's the thing that scares producers so many times. Like you just don't know, like you have an idea that something is really special, but you don't know that that special show is coming in at the right time so that the audience is going to get it. Like a show that may be extremely special a year too early or a year too late doesn't get the due that it deserves. So I think it's always a, you know, it, it is a crapshoot of, what what is the universe what is what is the universe putting together for us now yeah yeah and so the last show i'd love to ask you about is was of course a big success and i was lucky enough to see you in it and of course i loved it which was once on this island mm -hmm. in 2017 and so that was yet another sort of unusual setup because of the theater being yeah. in the round and what was it like to work around that and or it work was crazy that? it was horrible no it's <laughs> It, it, it was it was great, but it was horrible. It was great because, again, it was a full circle moment for me because it was the first professional show that I ever did. Yeah. Uh, it was spectacular because the writing on that show, uh, the Aaron's and Flaherty music and lyrics are exceptional. The the source material by Rosa Gee is exceptional. Michael's Michael's um, direction of the show and his idea of the show was was visionary. Camille's work was exceptional. So you have all these things working together and then you add in sand and cold water and fire and it 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 could make for a nightmare. But but again you you we had a cast that was up for anything. Uh we had a story that was that needed to be told again yeah. and in this new way. Uh and it 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 that makes for magic. And were uh, Arns and Flaherty around a lot? All the time, yeah, from the very oh. beginning, yeah. They were there the entire rehearsal process. Uh, if they were in town, they were coming by the show to see what was going on. If someone was going on, if an understudy or cover was going on, they were coming to see it because it it was it was that kind of support. Yeah. yeah. And yet another unique thing about that show was, of course, working with the goats on stage. Yes, two goats, four chickens. Yeah, they they say never work with 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 children or animals. We had kids and we had animals in the show. It it was great, but it was they again. It's like they you with with animals. You don't know what they're going to do or how they're going to respond on a given night to to a given circumstance. So everything was always a little different, but it was. They they were they were sweet. The, the the chickens on occasion would lay eggs. The goats on occasions would would relieve themselves in the in the sand. You know, these things happened. Yeah, yeah. And what do you think that the power of this production was that made it so successful and so moving and all of that? Again, I I think it I think it was the I think it was the right show at the right time. I think it was. I think it was something that that audiences needed to see and hear uh, a story. And again, it's a story that 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 aggravates a lot of people because this young girl gives up, dies for the love of this man who falls in love with someone else. But I think what people forget is she she gives up her life for the love. 
that makes her who she is, which is different than giving up her life for some guy who has chosen somebody else. He is, he is of less importance than, than Daniel is of less importance than Timoon realizing who she is and what she is and what she, what she will do for, for love. Yeah. And, and that's what she does. Uh, and, and she, and, and she becomes something that is, that we overlook on so many occasions and we forget how deep the roots are and how strong these, these trees are and how long they've been around and what they know and have seen. We forget that when we say, oh, she became a tree. It's like that. No, no, no. She, she became a tree. Yeah. That is, that is, that is, that is, that is life. That is powerful. That is something that will be here a lot longer than any of us will be here. The, the stories that those trees will hear, the, 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 the couples that will sit under a tree over generations, something that we will never understand. She becomes a tree. That's, that's goodness. And so I would love to ask you just one concluding question for our interview, which is what advice would you give to somebody just starting out after having had such a great career? I think the, the, the thing that I would, would say to someone is just just to 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 figure out who you are er, as early as you possibly can to to live and laugh and love and have your heart broken and allow all of those things to be a part of the story of who you are because that's going to make you a better artist that's going to make you a, hopefully going to make you a better human being and if you are if you are a compassionate and understanding and artistic human being that will all be a part of who you are as an artist you have to you have to find yourself and be you first before you can put that into put that on stage for someone else to to watch or to 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 see so it's like find like to 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 find yourself and love yourself and be happy with yourself and and live thank you so much for doing this it's been such an honor to talk to you Listeners, thank you for tuning in, and remember to come back next time when I am joined by artistic director Crystal Field. In 1970, Crystal co-founded the Theatre for the New City, and ever since then she has served as its artistic director, shepherding the works of such playwrights as Sam Shepard, Charles Bush, Charles Ludlam, and Maria Irene Fornes. She oversaw the theatre through four venues, including its current East Village Four Theatre Complex. She is also the creator of several major cultural celebrations, including the Village Halloween Parade, the annual Native American Pow Wow, and the Lower East Side Festival of the Arts. But before she was an artistic director, she was an actress, a member of the original Lincoln Center Company with Elia Kazan and Harold Clerman, the Judson Poets Theater, and Andre Gregory's Theater of the Living Arts. She appeared on Broadway in the original productions of Arthur Miller's After the Fall, Eugene O'Neill Marco Millions, and The Changeling. Crystal is a true legend, and you won't want to miss this conversation. So make sure to tune back in, and thanks for listening.